What's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of Back to the Movies. I'm your host, Ben, and with me, as always, is my co-host... Nat. Hello, Ben. How you How doing? How you doing, Nat? I'm doing, I'm doing good. I'm doing good. <laughs> jinx. Personal jinx. Owe me a soda. Uh, this is our second time recording the intro, and we're really, we're just nailing it. It's, it's really good. good. We got this. We got this. Um, I'm going to introduce the show, Back to the Movies, is a podcast where Ben and I go back to a certain year of cinema and explore all of the movies that kind of made that year. So the first year that we're going to... Season one. In this season one is 1990. 30 years ago from when we're recording this in 2020. And just so happens to be Ben and I's birth year. So we're kind of doing a little retrospective on the year that we came into being. And we've covered eight movies so far. I believe this is our ninth and the movie of this episode is called Miami Blues. Miami Blues. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so we're doing these roughly in chronological <laughs> order, as regular listeners will know. So we're still in the spring of 1990. This was a, a late April release, kind of yeah. right where we are now. It was, I think it was April 20th. April so, 20th, yeah. So there you go. Um, so yeah, this is a 1990 crime black comedy slash thriller slash weird ass movie. And Ben and I are going to have quite the conversation because we are oh, of two, boy, we're of two we different are. minds on this one. Well, uh, let's let's start with the basics. Now, why are we covering this movie? Because you were the one who really wanted to cover it. I'm a big fan of crime movies. I'm a big fan of wacky movies. I'm a big fan of wacky crime movies. And <laughs> this is a wacky crime movie. This is crazy. <laughs> this shit is nuts. And you had heard something about it before, right? This is one that had kind of passed me by. In fact, when we did our Hunt for Red October episode... I casually mentioned Miami Blues as like a bad credit in Alec Baldwin's filmography. And you were quick to correct me and say, no, I actually think that movie's supposed to be pretty good. And shortly thereafter, we added it to our schedule. I guess talk to me a little bit about that. What did you heard about this movie before we saw it? I feel like I'm in an interrogation right now. Uh, <laughs> I had seen a clip or two of it on YouTube because I love just kind of cruising YouTube and seeing crazy clips of movies. And I think I saw probably a scene where Baldwin punches somebody in the face or something and is just acting totally nuts. And it looked funny. Like I, and I, I think that it kind of spoke to me. I love these crime thrillers in of this era, especially. And I love just actors acting crazy and yelling. Like I've told you before. <laughs> you and, do, you do. That is a common theme. <laughs> you like a yelling actor. Yeah. So I, and then I had, I had looked the movie up and I had seen that it's actually pretty critically lauded. Like it's it got a good, rep so i wanted to check it out talk to me about the milieu that you're talking about like the crime thrillers from the early 90s what are we talking about i'm talking about just these urban kind of gritty pastel soaked crime dramas you got tarantino starting out so you've got reservoir dogs and then a few years after this uh pulp fiction yeah and if you go if you go further in the past you have stuff like miami vice and Mm -hmm. you have sort of the michael mann Right. Era. You got a bunch of Elmore Leonard adaptations happening like throughout 80s, 90s and 2000s. Yep. And it's just a different era for crime. It it feels a little bit. <laughs> what is so funny? It's just, just uh, that was crime was different back then. You have to understand. Crime was, it wasn't was. all this cyber crime. You had to be it's a tr- real criminal. You had to get me. on the streets. <laughs> You had to buy a, a plastic Uzi at the grocery store. Oh, God. <laughs> what? So so much vitriol for the movie. Okay, we'll get there. <laughs> no, we anyway, get 
What I'm saying is I like that I like that it's shot on film. I like that it feels weightier. I feel like crime movies now aren't as crimey. They're not as grimy and they're not as crimey. And I just can't get behind what they're trying to do with crime movies these days. What do we have, like Den of Thieves? What is this? It's like all I, Abercrombie and Fitch models. I kind of like Den of Thieves. I haven't actually seen it, so I can't I mean, it's shit. like a bad heat. Like, right. you know, it's... It's Heat, but with Gerard Butler instead of Robert De Niro, so therefore it can only be as good as a movie that replaces Robert De Niro with Gerard Butler can be. But yeah. for what it is, it's kind of fun and nasty. Here's the thing. I think a lot of crime content has moved to TV because you get way more time to tell a long, convoluted story about criminals. You can explore their inner psyches. Yeah. And you don't get as many of these crazy movies where just crazy shit happens for two hours and it's it's a fun watch and it's stylish. So many of the shows that precipitated this modern golden age of of TV were crime shows. Sopranos, The Wire, uh, Breaking Bad. Yeah. And it's gotten out of hand, honestly. There's so many the crime shows now. Now it's like Ozark and Narcos and Narcos <laughs> Mexico. And it's just there's so much crime TV. But it just doesn't it doesn't hurt as good as crime movies. You know, even this season of Westworld's about crime. So. I just appreciate this era, and I just love the look, I love the feel, and I love that it's no holds barred. Yeah, so to bring it back in, you like this era, and you think that this film is a prime example of what you like about this era. I think you so. You like this movie. I like this movie. Yeah, it's a stylish, funny movie, and I really enjoyed watching it. I laughed so much at the comedic parts. I thought it was just a really enjoyable movie. Let's hear what you have to say. <laughs> I really wanted to like this movie. On okay. paper, it sounded right up my alley. I'm a big fan of later films from this director, George Armitage. I like Baldwin. I like Fred Ward. I like Jennifer Jason Leigh. Like, there was a lot of stuff on paper that sounded pretty good. I watched the trailer, and I liked the trailer. And then I sat down, and I watched the movie. And the word that I would use for my emotional reaction to this film was nonplussed. Nonplussed. Bemused. Slightly annoyed and confused. <laughs> okay. This movie is full of obvious creative choices. And yet, to me, every single one of those choices failed to produce the desired result. It is a movie that should be funny, and yet I don't think I laughed more than once. Oh, my God. I laughed so much watching this movie. That's insane. Why? Every joke in this movie fails to land. What jokes are we talking about? Because I just thought it wasn't even about the jokes. It was just it wasn't jokes. Or the it behavioral wasn't like, stuff. Like, we'll get yeah. into it. We'll get into it because it's the bulk of the argument I think we're going to have. But we right. should we should do our due diligence first. We should talk about the the book report stuff about this movie, because that, sure. to be honest, is the thing that I'm most excited to talk about. OK, so this movies based off a book by a guy named Charles Wilford. Do you know who that author is? No. I was not overly familiar either. I realized after the fact that I had actually heard of him before, um, although I've never read any of his books, but he was a pretty influential figure in his day. He was a hard-boiled detective novelist, sort of the part of the second generation of those. He starts publishing stuff in the 40s, so it's after like Raymond Chandler. But he goes on to have a pretty successful career, and right at the end of his life, he publishes a series of books about a detective named Hoke Mosley that just shoot him over the top. And that's okay. where Miami Blues comes in. It's the first Hoke Mosley novel. It's published in 84, which is only four years before Wilford dies. Uh, but he was a pretty influential figure 
you'll see him reference a lot. You had a quote in here from Quentin Tarantino. Yeah. Where when he talked about what his inspirations were, he's like, it's not neo-noir. It's this kind of seedy, hard-boiled crime stuff that Wilford was doing, that Elmore Leonard was doing, that became very much in vogue in the 80s. It wasn't so much mystery-based. It wasn't so much about like a corruption of of a, of a of a good soul by evil forces it was just about how kind of nasty and messed up and also sad all these people were that were trapped in this world yeah it's not necessarily glamorizing the crime but it's also not demonizing it right yeah it just, just sort, of sort of is it's just observing how how gross but also spectacular it can be so Wilford writes this book, Miami Blues, published in 84, and it gets optioned pretty quickly by Bill Horberg and our old friend, Fred Ward. Freddy! He comes back from Tremors. Uh, let's just quickly talk about Fred Ward. When we watched Tremors, you said you didn't have a, like a, a big, he didn't hold a place in like your headcanon. No. What'd you think of him in this movie? Loved him. Loved him. He's so charming <laughs> and scuzzy at the same time. It's amazing. It's pretty incredible that this came out like three months after Tremors. Yeah. Imagine that it's such a different performance than Tremors, but equally lovable to me. Yeah. They're both kind of lovable, oddball, sad sacks. <laughs> yeah. I don't know. It's And it's he's playing a cop and he does a good job at it. So I'm I'm now a Fred Ward fan for sure. He's impressed me. <laughs> well, we're going to get to see him again because he's in uh, Dick Tracy. Oh, so yeah. he'll be around. I mean, Hell like, yeah. this was his golden age. And I and I mentioned it on the Tremors episode that like he was just a working actor. He was in a ton of stuff. He was great. He worked with great directors. He worked with unheard of directors. Um, he wasn't afraid to commit to a project, as in this case, where he's the one who puts up the money for the book. And Ward brings it to Jonathan Demi. And I think I'm going to mention Demi a lot in this episode. Jonathan Demi obviously is like a tremendous American director someone i think who was sort of overlooked in his time but thanks to his disciples people like paul thomas anderson who have you know then spent their careers expounding his virtues he's now remembered as i think you know a great director of his generation yeah he's important in this movie for two reasons even though he doesn't end up directing it he does produce it and he's the one who sends it over to george armitage who's the guy who ultimately writes and directs it and his dna is all over this movie this is like the Jonathan Demi movie that Jonathan Demi never made. It's his DP, Tak Fujimoto. It's his editor, Craig McKay. All like the supporting characters are played by actors that would regularly appear in his movies because one of the things Demi would like to do would be use the same supporting cast over and over again. And it's the same guys. Charles Napier, Kenneth Utt, Obo uh, Babatunde. Like, they're all there. Um, but the movie is also definitely trying to swim in the same end of the pool as... Demi's 80s films, Married to the Mob, and Something Wild in particular. Okay. Have you seen either of those films? I've got very weird memories of Married to the Mob, but I don't really remember it. But really, my only true Demi experience is Silence of the Lambs and then Rachel getting married. Sure. Which are like uh, a totally different end of his career. But yeah. he gets started. I mean, he doesn't get... We'll talk about Roger Corman, too, here in a second. But when he breaks out as an independent voice, Demi's first milieu are like zany comedies, high concept comedies, right. usually with a crime element involved. Um, and so this is definitely probably why Ward thought of him. And it's definitely why he would have been a good fit for this movie. But instead, it goes to Armitage. And I don't want to undersell Armitage either, because he's a pretty impressive creative voice on his own. Um, although he's a he's sort of one of these like unheralded guys from Hollywood history. The only other George Armitage movie I've ever seen is the big bounce, 
which is a terrible movie. <laughs> you haven't seen Gross Point Blank? I haven't seen Gross Point Blank. Oh, uh, but the I big bounce, love Gross Point Blank. Yeah, I've always wanted to see it, but I remember thinking The Big Bounce was going to be awesome because it had all my favorite actors from when I was 14 years old and then going to see it in the theaters and being like, oh, that was bad. What? So The Big Bounce isn't the one with... um. It's Owen Wilson and Morgan okay. Freeman no, 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 and Gary obviously. Sinise. What's the in movie Hawaii. with, with um, Tim Allen that like wants to be Big like Trouble. a Zimmy? Big Trouble. Yeah. Yes. So never seen that also one either. Also a but bad movie. <laughs> all these great crime movies that aren't really necessarily great. But yeah, so I'm not super familiar with Armitage, but what are some of his earlier movies? Well, he and Demi get their start working for Roger Corman. Okay. I mean, like there was a time where Roger Corman was the incubator for all of the talent in the film industry. You know, people like uh, uh, Francis Ford Coppola got their start doing stuff for Corman because he would hire you. Who was Roger Corman exactly? Was he a big producer at like a certain studio? He was he was an independent producer for the most part. I mean, okay. he would work wherever he could get the money, but he was like the the maestro of schlock. Okay. Like he, his brand is every exploitation and B movie that you could possibly imagine. Make it cheap, follow the trends and try and get a profit out of it. This is in the fifties and sixties and onto the seventies and eighties. But he's also working with Coppola. Well, but what he would do is he would hire talented young filmmakers that the industry wouldn't give a shot and he would let them do whatever they wanted to do. As long as they followed his simple rules, it's like, this has got to be the title because we've already got a poster made. There's got to be boobs in it. And there's got to be a scene that does this thing. Then do whatever else you want. Okay. It's incredible. If you look at the line of filmmakers that got a start with him, I am underselling it by just mentioning Coppola, but I don't want to misspeak, but people like Ron Howard, Joe Dante, Jonathan Demi, George Armitage. I even want to say people like, like Scorsese, uh, uh, James Cameron, Piranha two is a Corman joint. Wow. So that's, that's a cool little piece of history that is tangentially related to this movie, but well, I like it. And the point is that, you know, it's clear that while working with Corman, George Armitage and Jonathan Demi became friends. I read a pretty good interview with Armitage, and in it he mentions that the, when when he tells the story of Demi passing on the movie and giving it to him, he uses a nickname for himself that, that Demi would have used. So like it, it's clear that they were more than just acquaintances. They were friends. And I think that tracks. They have similar sensibilities. They're kind of like... Rock and roll filmmakers. That's the term that, that Armitage uses for himself, where they're rule breakers. They just kind of want to make the movies they want to make. They love music. They love cars. They love interesting stories. They love inversions. Yeah. And so he makes a couple of movies that have been, as far as I know, like found audiences, although I haven't seen either of them. Vigilante Force and Hot Rod are the two big ones that, that I see mentioned a lot. And that is not the Andy Samberg hot rod. Not the Andy Samberg hot rod. It's, a, <laughs> it's, it's like a car racing hot rod, American graffiti style kind of movie. From like the 70s. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't make a lot of movies. He takes big breaks in between. He does a lot of writing too. But that is the filmography that leads him to this spot where he makes this movie. It had been a while since he had been a movie, right? It had been like 10 years or so. The Demi comparison is going to be interesting for a number of reasons. Um, but I think... One of them, at least, is not particularly flattering, which is that one of the things that really sets Demi apart is his empathy as a filmmaker, that he's someone who really wants to tell stories about all kinds of people from all kinds of perspectives. And this movie, while trying to mimic a lot of the 
tropes and conventions that Demi had established in some of his 80s quirky crime comedies doesn't have the same empathy for its characters that that Demi would have had. And we'll talk about that more, I'm sure. But that's I, I think that if anyone listening is a Jonathan Demi fan, and if you're not, I highly encourage you to give him another look. It's really interesting to look at this film with him in mind and think about what it would have been. I guess, yeah, that's an interesting point, but it's not a Jonathan Demi movie. So no. you can't judge it by that standard. You have to judge it by the movie's standard. And for me, the movie is just goofy and fun and the characters are ridiculous and it's just a fun watch. So I don't know. We'll get into it in a second. Do you want to talk about the other, the yeah, other I was version? Yeah, trying to tee up for that. We're talking about other versions of the movie. Yeah, so the, there was originally a different casting for this movie. It was going to be Gene Hackman as Hoke, the cop, and Fred Ward as Junior, the con. Yeah, I just think that's really interesting. I mean, I could see why Hackman would have wanted to play Hoke Mosley because he's kind of a, um, you know, he's sort of like Clint Eastwood in Unforgiven. When you look at like Gene Hackman's early career, particularly things like The French Connection, where he's playing these badass cops who like don't follow the rules. And Hoke's kind of like, the loser version of that. <laughs> He's so ridiculous. So He's it would have so been really crazy, fun yeah. to see Gene Hackman do that. And it's not like Hackman was opposed to, you know, deconstructing his own persona. I mean, look at like enemy of the state, which is specifically meant to be like a callback to his role in the conversation. Yeah. I'm kind of glad I got Fred Ward in this though. Cause then Fred Ward would have played junior, which maybe would have been cool, but I liked him as Hoke. I don't know. I thought mm. he was he brought a certain charm to the role that maybe Gene Hackman wouldn't have. Or maybe it would have been more about Gene Hackman than Fred Ward. I don't know. The characters are really different. It's just sort of interesting that that Ward felt that he could flip like that. Yeah, that's true. He just was like, oh, I'll, I'll jump into this other role. Why not? I mean, it's clear that he was, you know, he's the one who optioned the book. He did it because he wanted to be in the movie. Yeah. So candidly, I think that both Ward and Baldwin are bad in this movie. I think neither of them. Neither of their performances are particularly good. And I really would be interested to see what Ward would do with Junior, because one thing Ward does quite a bit is, is again, he's a very empathetic actor. His characters tend to have a lot of, like, I don't know, like softness to them. And it would have been interesting to see that in Junior instead of Baldwin, who, to me, in this movie, he feels like uh, like a robot man who's been programmed <laughs> to be crazy. Like, I, it doesn't feel like it's coming from somewhere inside him. It feels like he's like, what is the craziest thing I can do right now? Do it. That's the point, though. That's why you're watching the movie, man. That's what's so great about it. See, that's the difference between you and me, is that that's what's so great about this movie. We don't need empathy here. It's just about what crazy shit is going to happen next, but in the most stylish way possible. It's not just exploitation. It's no. doing it with the sort of veneer of, oh, this is a crime movie, All right, but crazy shit happens. Talk to me about style, because I think I agree with you that this movie is stylish. Well, it's it's a whole set of things. It's the way that the actors look. It's the way that they're dressed. It's the way that the picture looks. Clearly, this movie is always drawing attention to itself. The colors are popping. The colors it's are great. using Miami as a color palette just as much as it is a setting. And... It's building a world very subtly, but also over the top, where a world where people are being mugged left and right, and people are driving trucks through glass windows, and there's a betting shop on every corner that's being run by a fucking Miami Vice cop. It's this ridiculous heightened reality, and if you buy into it, 
the movie is just super fun to watch. I have to be honest, the closest analogy I could think of in terms of like another movie or work of art is like, it's like a Grand Theft Auto movie. It's just like, <laughs> let's see what crazy shit can happen in this movie, but let's keep the veneer of this is a serious movie. You know what? The only way Alec Baldwin's <laughs> character makes sense in this movie is if he's the player character in a Grand Theft Auto. Exactly. And that's what makes it so much fun to watch. It's just ridiculous. and Because he's not only homicidal and sociopathic and psychotic, but he's also weirdly detached from everything that he is doing and is happening to him. Right. And I think the major difference between you and me is that I love watching this because it's just so stupid and fun. Here's, here's what I want to say while we're on the subject of style. I think this movie is really well shot. Yeah. It's I think, beautiful. I mean, Tak Fujimoto is an incredible cinematographer and he has such an expressive camera. Think about like the close-ups in Silence of the Lambs. He wasn't afraid to get really creative with the way he used his camera. And this movie is no different. The camera does a lot of handheld stuff. It does a lot of low angles, does a lot of wide angles, does a lot of really interesting stuff that all worked for me. I thought the movie looked pretty great. Yeah, it looks amazing. And also just the styles of clothing and colors of clothing and even the Some locations excellent that they find. Pants. That, that restaurant where they eat brunch it's like on an island in the middle of a where they have one bite of brunch that was ready immediately after they ordered it what are you the guy that watches casablanca and is like (laughs) oh they took one sip of the martini who gives a shit you're right i don't i don't (laughs) some of my stuff here is a little nitpicky and it really shouldn't be because i think this movie has fundamental problems that are much more serious than the nitpicky ones although it does sort of highlight one of the issues with the movie which is that it just it doesn't make sense so we have this restaurant scene, right? We have these two characters, a prostitute and a criminal, who are I'm getting together laughing. for a second date after they had a really, really weird first interaction, like hyper weird, where the criminal tried to sell the prostitute a dress. Yeah. And it's just so silly. Everything's so- kind of uncomfortable. They're at like a really tacky restaurant where all the waiters are dressed. <laughs> she gives him, like <laughs> she gives him the shirt that says. All the waiters are dressed say? like gondoliers from Venice, <laughs> and there's synchronized swimming going on in a nearby pool. And he gets her a mug that has her name on it, and she gets him a shirt that says, "What does it say? It I like says, to it's something about the party. I, I like to party naked." Yeah, I don't remember. It's so funny, though. Everything you're saying right now just makes me laugh. And all this is happening under the pretense that I guess they're going to this restaurant and like (laughs) dates where they decide to meet. And the scene then progresses to them ordering something, it being delivered, and then Alec Baldwin eating one bite and not liking it and being rude about it. And then they leave. Yeah. And it's fine. Like, there's some funny stuff there. Don't get me wrong. Like, the shirt is kind of funny. And I really <laughs> like Jennifer Jason Lee. I really do. We're going to talk about that more. But I think she's really good in this movie. Yeah. But what did the movie do to advance the story, to advance our understanding of the characters, to do anything that a movie is supposed to do in a scene that happens, like, still in the first act of the movie? I'll tell you what it's doing. It's establishing the style. It's establishing that this movie is ridiculous and this is the movie where Baldwin is going to yell at a waitress because the ice cream is yogurt and (laughs) it's just stupid, but it's great. It's like, it's all the things that you just said, the why is just, just because like it's because that's not good enough. 
it is good enough. If it, it it made me laugh and it made me just react in a in a funny way, and it just it's showing that Baldwin's an asshole and that Jennifer Jason Lee is stupid, and that's what it is. And it's doing it in the most stylish way possible. I don't know mm. what more you need. I'm gonna I'm gonna, I'm gonna mark that that is is the stupid comment because I want to return to that when we get into the plot a little bit. Okay. Let's get into the plot. Yeah. Um, the movie starts with Norman Greenbaum's Spirit in the Sky. Nice, Great song. Long, nice long title sequence. Great song. Little overplayed yeah, at definitely. this point. But in this movie, it works. And Junior's on the plane. And let me just shout out to Hunt for October. Starts very similarly with Alec Baldwin. <laughs> and he gets to Miami and it's immediately clear that he's a con of sorts. He's stealing people's driver's licenses. He's stealing suitcases. And he kills someone <laughs> in the, in the uh, he, you don't see him kill anybody, but he, he breaks the finger of a Hare Krishna who's propositioning him. I want to back up for a second. Yes. First scene on the airplane, we see Baldwin flipping through some wallets he's stolen, finding an ID, practicing the signature on the ID so he can fake it. We're like, oh, this guy's a pretty smooth cat. I don't know a lot about him. He looks kind of crazy. But look at him forging that signature. He's clearly got a plan. And then the next scene is him walking through the airport, like just randomly stealing luggage or attempting to steal luggage. And he looks like a complete idiot. Like he has no <laughs> idea what he's doing. Like he's never stolen anything before. <laughs> Okay. I don't understand if this guy is a kleptomaniac or if he's just bored or if he is like so insane that he's just like, if I don't steal something right now, what's the point of living? <laughs> I think you're onto something with the last one. He's here's, just, here's the thing. He's just nuts. He's, he's just, just nuts. nuts. <laughs> I, I really had a problem with his character. I really, really did. I just, I needed some underlying pathology to him. And I read the first chapter of the book because I could download a demo of it on my Kindle. And so I read the first chapter of the book. Interesting. Okay. And the first chapter of the book, he's on the airplane, he's forging a signature, <laughs> whatever. It's all a process. And then it ends with one really, really telling line. Okay. It's something like, I'm going to paraphrase it because I didn't write it down. But something like, and then he was going to do all the stuff he had spent the last three years wanting to do. And that was oh. all you needed was just the idea that this guy's been in prison for three years and he just wants to have fun. Like he's just, he... He knows he's going back. That's what he says. Is like before he goes back, before he go, he goes back. He just wants to do all the things he spent the last three years thinking about. So he's That's just so like funny. he's on like a weekend bender. But the movie doesn't make it seem like that. To me, it seemed like that. I got that without having to read the book. I understood this is a guy who has a really pretty face and who's been locked up for a long time. We get that information, and he doesn't. He says it himself later in the movie. He's like, I don't know what I want. She says, what do you want? And he's like, I don't know. Right. I just, I'm fucking, I, I have no idea. But what the book suggests is not that he doesn't know what he wants. It's that he does know what he wants. He wants to be a fucking menace. And then well, that justifies everything else. At least I think it's like, me, it's, I just needed something like that. To me, that, that kind of came through. Even if somebody says, I don't know what I want, it's more like, I just want to go fucking crazy and... And just hurt people. Like, I, except it, he also it came wants like, to me. He also wants to pretend to be a cop. Like, not just use the badge to steal stuff, but he also kind of gets off on being the hero. And he wants like this weird domestic life that yeah, is incongruous with <laughs> him just being insane. I, I mean, I think you're thinking too hard about it. I think that when it comes down to it, 
He's a crazy person on the loose. And the movie is also more concerned with just creating funny situations where crazy shit happens, where he ends up shooting someone in the leg or he ends up getting a stitch in his eye. That's what the movie is mostly concerned with. Yeah, it's not concerned. Funny. <laughs> it's it is funny. It's funny. It's hilarious. When he gets his fingers chopped off, it's so shocking and weird that you just can't help but laugh. That was so, that was the one that I was referring to earlier. I liked it when his fingers got chopped off. Yeah, it's that's what the movie is all about. And yeah, if there was a scene where he's talking about his time in prison and how he just needed to be let loose, I just think it would have taken away from it. I think you can kind of infer all of this and you can kind of put whatever you want in there. And it's just, it's more about the style and the fun of watching Baldwin act crazy. That's what the movie is. No more, no less. I, I, I want to agree with you. I really do because I wanted to have fun watching someone be crazy. And there are plenty of things that I do enjoy. That's just somebody being crazy right now. Grace and I are rewatching Always Sunny in Philadelphia. And there's, Perfect and like, example. Charlie Kelly. Like, yeah. they're kind of in the same ballpark, right? Like, Charlie, Ed, and and Junior, they're both completely psychotic. But Charlie has a character. I understand him enough that when he does something, I, I don't just feel confused. I, I get the humor of it. I understand <laughs> why it's funny for him to do that or not funny for him to do that or funny that he would think that that's something he needs to do. Right. But I never understood that with Baldwin. And I actually think it doesn't, it's not the movie's fault. I think it's Baldwin's fault. Is that like, I don't think he's playing any kind of coherent spine to this character at all. I think he's okay. just playing each scene as doing the thing in that scene and making it crazy because there's times when the movie tries to like establish spines. It, it spends a long time on this idea that he steals from criminals. Right. That's like the, the whole like middle 40 minutes of the movie. Yeah, he's robbing people in the alleyways and beach bums and stuff like that. And he even gets a scene where he says that out loud, that that's what he went to jail for. But that doesn't feel consistent with the character that from before that sequence or after that sequence. <laughs> like when he stole from that apartment? When he Yeah, or when he stole from <laughs> Susie or when he almost killed a cop or when he robbed the pawn shop. <laughs> Ebert, it's, just, in his review, it's honestly, it's it's making me laugh just as much to see you react this way. I almost feel like I am him because I'm just like, this is great. He's just making it. He's making Ben angry. He's just like, he's nuts. It's amazing. He's the real Joker because the Joker in Dark Knight actually does have. A, he's so full of shit. He's like, I don't have a plan. I'm just a dog chasing cars. This is the real version yeah, of that. But that's what makes the Joker like magnetic and interesting oh, totally. is that he does have a plan. And yeah. Part and of I'm it not is saying we're not putting not Joker and, and junior in the same well, room, but I'm just saying it's funny to watch a character that makes no sense. Sometimes it's just a cartoon in his review. Ebert said <laughs> these were personality profiles, not characters. And I think that was really telling because they just, it felt like a bunch of actions on paper with yeah. no human being underneath. And it's not just Baldwin. It's Ward 2. Oh, see, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I kind of agree with that, but I don't mind it. I don't mind it if the movie is making up for it in humor and style. And I know it didn't quite get the humor. I, I know the humor didn't quite scratch it for you, but for me, I was laughing so hard during this movie. What's funny is that a lot of the, the bits, the jokes, the gags, I thought were funny in the trailer. Like they played better in like a two second clip 
than they did when they had too much lead in and too much lead out. What gags are you referring to? Because I don't even think of this movie with gags. I just think of it as these ridiculous lines. Like when he's walking into the house and the realtor is like, almost antique like just like stupid lines like that that just made me laugh i mean I it, was stuff, it, was. it was stuff like the the um the stopping the the purse snatcher and saying go get him i'm a cop and then running in the opposite direction so like, that's, <laughs> yeah. like, that's like a, that's a gag it's like a joke that's a gag and that's yeah. actually one of the ones that works better because it's so tight and narrow right um, right we should we should get back on the plot yeah yeah we're, we're going in circles the next thing we get to talk about is jennifer jason lee who i, I did really like in this movie yeah, so so uh, Junior checks into a hotel and he immediately has a call girl sent to his room and it's Jennifer Jason Lee. She looks so young in this movie. She does, and I was surprised because she was in Fast Times in '81, right? And she was already an adult at that point, playing a kid. Her first credit is in '76. She was nine wow. years old then, but like she'd been acting for a long time before this. Yeah. It's crazy. And she does. She says like, oh, you look like you're 15. And she she kind of does look like she's 15. It's crazy. But she's great. And I've always been a huge fan of Fast Times. And I think her performance in that is really underrated. She's amazing. And I love Jennifer Jason Lee. For me, it's a it's Hudsucker Proxy. Also uh, great. Uh, like, a, like a secret love of mine of the Coens. Like one of the ones I hold up pretty high and totally different character. Like other side of the galaxy different from this character. Yeah, it's true. So that just speaks to her acting ability. She had a pretty big year in 1990. She had this and she had another movie called Last Exit to Brooklyn, which was actually released in 89, but late 89. Uh, she plays prostitutes in both and she won a bunch of critics awards sort of for both performances. It led uh, Entertainment Weekly dubbing her the Meryl Streep of bimbos, which I think oh my is God. just a great title. Uh, wouldn't fly in 2020. No, it would not. No, uh, would not. <laughs> but she's amazing. And what do you think of her in this movie? So we are told by the characters of the movie that she is stupid and she doesn't act particularly bright. But I think what Jennifer Jason Lee brings to it is this really interesting sense of sort of like willful naivete. Like she has a peripheral awareness of how messed up her life is. But because it's her life and she doesn't have a choice, she sort of chooses to ignore it. Mm. The the thing that exemplifies it for me is like her monologue about or not really, but it's like her line about why she loved Junior after he's been shot. And, he's, and she says something like, you know, he always ate everything I cooked him and he never hit me. And as the audience were like, well, that's obviously not enough for a relationship. And I don't think the movie is saying that she thinks it is, but that's what she has to work with. So that's what she's going to work with. And I think Jennifer Jason Lee, who is a pretty intelligent actress and generally plays pretty intelligent people, can't hide that intelligence. That there's like a spark to her. There's moments where you kind of see her thinking and then deciding to just kind of go with it. And it really made her by far the most compelling character in the movie because she was the only one I felt like I could get a grip on and understand why they were the way they were. She's also the only character that makes a decision in this movie with impact. Right. She's like, no one has any sense. plot related to her. She's the only one who makes a decision that makes sense. She sees that he's robbing the coin store and then she drives away and it affects the plot. An hour and a half into the movie, we have a character <laughs> making a choice that affects other characters. And it's pretty emotional when that happens. We'll talk about it later. I mean, there's still stuff that I don't get about her character. The first thing that Junior does, I guess it's not the first thing, but like when they're together in her house is he robs her. 
And then, like, it never comes up. Did she not notice that her gigantic gun was missing? That her coin collection was gone? Hold on a second. Hold on. He didn't rob her. He went next door. He picked the lock next door and robbed the neighbor. That's what happened. Well, While I she's totally, in the shower, I totally he picked that. the lock. I thought it he was, was her like, house. No, no. She's in an apartment, and she's, he's like, I have an idea. While she's in the shower, I'm going to go rob next door. Okay. That makes a lot more sense. I thought she was just like, he was, like, picking a door in her house. No, no, because then she he got the meat and she's like, where'd that come from? And he's like, shut up. Like, he he just went, he just can't control himself. He just okay. is like, I'm going to go quickly okay. rob okay. next door. Okay, great. Uh, Jennifer <laughs> Jason Lee moving even further up my book. There you go. So after that whole scene, we get introduced to Hoke Mosley. And it's a classic early 90s cop, <laughs> a, a, a classic early 90s police station. He's got his partner who's Charles about Napier. to retire. So glad that that partner didn't get killed. I really thought that's oh, where worry. we were Just going. Just give him a couple of years, he'll get ripped to shreds by Hannibal Lecter. <laughs> and we meet Hoke, and he's charming, but also kind of weird. He's got these false teeth. And is he charming? I, know you don't... I think he's charming in a very scuzzy way. Why he's... is he always taking his teeth out? Because he's disgusting. He's a disgusting person. He's a Grand Theft Auto character. He's... <laughs> He's just this kind of gross cop, and but you kind of like him. Did you not like him? No. No. Okay, I, felt, I liked him. I felt, again, I just felt sort of generally confused by him, mostly because the problem with Hoke, and again, this is it's actually not on, this one's on the movie, this one's not on the performer, is that he gets the information about the murder of the Hare Krishna, and that seems fine, because the dude died because his finger was snapped backwards. That's kind of funny and weird, and besides... <laughs> There was a real prejudice against Hare Krishna's at the time. So all that tracks. And then he has a scene where he tracks down Susie Wagner, meets a guy there who he believes is the one who snapped the finger of the Hare Krishna. And then just proceeds to sit down and have dinner with him and makes no real inquiries and doesn't arrest the guy or bring him in for questioning or even say that he's going to do any of those things. <laughs> like that scene was so weird i could not it's a long scene too it goes on really long and the entire time i'm just sitting there going i don't understand this cop's game i don't understand what he's doing i don't understand is he dumb no he knows this is the guy he already said that it was gottlieb and he knows gottlieb was the guy with the sport coat and he knows he snapped the finger i don't understand what is happening didn't you just enjoy watching them though that's what really mattered to me i just liked watching them have this heated dinner and Except watching them, I don't care about the the inner machinations of his police work. I'm enjoying watching Fred Ward and Alec Baldwin have a heated dinner and slamming beers and being assholes. That's what it's all about. For the dinner to be truly suspenseful, and I feel like the dinner wants to be. You know, it has the revelations where it's like, oh, you're eating like a convict. And then later Baldwin pulls the gun in the kitchen. But for that to really be su successful, I need to know what the characters know and what they don't know. I have to right. be able to track that myself so that I can worry about when they're going to figure out what things. But I had no idea. I just thought that it was simpler. I thought Fred Ward, Hoke, was just playing it cool. He's not going to whip out his badge and arrest the guy. He wants to see what the guy is going to do. And it's is it unrealistic? Yes. Is it silly? Yes. But this is a stupid black comedy. That's That's how I was looking at it. It's I don't need it to make perfect sense with in the confines of actual police work. Well, but I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is that it's undercutting the drama of the scene. It's making right. the scene less suspenseful, less funny. 
because it's not effectively communicating the information that we need in order to reach those emotional states. Yeah. I'm not going to go and say that this is the most tense scene or the funniest scene ever. I mostly just enjoyed watching it. And you can take that for what it is. It's sure. not. Is it constructed perfectly? No. Is it silly? Yes. It's just, I just didn't have like this mental block of like, I can't enjoy this because <laughs> it's being ruined by all of these logic things. That just didn't happen for me. A lot of this is me after the fact trying to unpack it too, because during the moment I was just confused. I was just right. like, I don't, uh, uh, uh. that was what was happening to me. Yeah, I, I maybe that was happening to me too, but I kind of just got past it. Okay. I was just like, oh, this movie is silly. Like, I, one of the big things I wanted to talk about is this movie paired with another movie that we talked about recently called Blue Steel. Yeah, should we get into that now? Yeah, why? Why not? Because I, I mean, if you've I been mean, listening for this long, <laughs> then you love listening to me and Ben talk about this shit. So I why would not? say that like the next thing that happens is really the start of the plot of this movie. Only it isn't because it has no relevance on anything that happens after it. So, well, we could quickly talk about it. He beats him up. He goes to his house. Junior and he beats goes the to Mosley's house. Hook Mosley's house. Yeah. Beats him up. Steals his shit. His badge. His gun. His teeth. Yep. I like your total humiliation because I was like, why did he take the teeth? He doesn't take any other trophies in the movie. Because fuck him, that's why. I I'm guess. taking his teeth. Yeah, Even that's though, why. like, he was pretty darn polite and kind in the dinner scene when Dude, he was... Dude, he came into his house, he made his woman cook him a meal, he was a total asshole. He fronted, and Baldwin yeah. has no filter, and he goes and kicks the shit out of him. He's in the presence of a suspected manslaughterer, and he chooses to just be polite and civil and let him go and make no arrests or any kind of serious inquiries. <laughs> yeah, because then we get the next scene. It's great. It's just, it, listen, let's talk about this in Blue Steel. Um, I am more into this movie because I think there, here's the, the two things that they have in common. They're both crime movies from yeah. 1990. They both have impeccable style. Yes. Very different styles, but yeah. impeccable. And impeccable cinematography. Um, Blue Steel, I felt, took itself to a dream-like Escape. It's it's on the dream end of things, mm -hmm. whereas this is on the comedy end of things. Oh. And this is just you're in this you're kind of noticing funny character quirks, and those are the kind of movies that I respond to. Some of my favorite movies are like Fargo and Boogie Nights and uh, Snatch. These kind of crime thrillers where all of them, yeah, great movies and crime thrillers where it's more about just watching the characters and what crazy shit is going to happen with them and how are they going to react to it? What are the actors going to do with it? And I felt like this was in that vein, whereas Blue Steel was a little bit more about what can the filmmakers do? What what crazy filmmaking can we see with slow motion and crazy cinematography? And I don't know. I just don't respond to that as yeah. much as I respond to something like this. I don't, I don't think I disagree with you. The one thing I will say, though, is that the ultimate saving grace of Blue Steel for me is Jamie Lee Curtis, is that I think she is delivering a really good performance as a really interesting character. Yeah. And so the thing that winds up resonating the most from that film is the character stuff. Even though I really love the way that film looks, I love its style, I love a lot of its thematic pretensions, 
the thing that wouldn't mean anything if Jamie Lee Curtis was delivering a performance as sort of inscrutable and strange as Alec Baldwin's performance in this movie. And you get a little bit of that because Ron Silver's kind of in that category. I think Ron Silver's pretty good in a few scenes and then pretty bad in others. But Baldwin is just like, he's never anything for me. And without, with him being the main character, without having somebody like Jamie Lee Curtis in Blue Steel to carry me through the moments when the movie is really straining my credulity, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't get it up for it. See, for me, laughter is the best medicine. And Baldwin made me laugh. That's what mattered to me. He made me laugh. Even if his character made absolutely no sense. Did he make you laugh when he was pretending to be a cop? Because that's the next part of the movie. Yes, he did. He did. When he's, oh my God. When he's going around and especially that scene where... First of all, I just want to say again, I love that there's just always crime happening in this. There's just always some stick-up artist. And, and it's just, that it just was, happens to be where Baldwin is. It just always happens to be where Baldwin is. That's when you realize this movie is stupid. Like, this is a stupid comedy. This is not trying to be serious at all. It's just, oh, now there's another robbery. I think it's very tongue-in-cheek. And since the movie is so stylish, maybe it's a little bit harder to see that. But I just thought it was just being goofy. It's just about seeing these insane shenanigans. I don't want to keep repeating that. <laughs> well, then get specific. What are the ones that really stuck out to you? The one where he shoots the guy at the restaurant. A guy is robbing a register at a restaurant and Baldwin's sitting there with these ridiculous sunglasses, shoots the guy, and then a, a blind guy witnesses it and is talking to Hoke about it. It's just so funny. That's one of the gags, again, I think played a little bit better in the trailers is the shooting the guy and then saying, stop it or I'll shoot. Because yeah. in the movie, there's like a, a lot of dead air ahead of that where it's just sort of Baldwin sitting in the restaurant for a few seconds. And then the guy he shot says, but you shot like, it says something like, but you shot me first, which we didn't need. <laughs> the joke was already funny without that. Like when it's just Baldwin, the guy robbing the register, Baldwin shooting him and then saying, stop or I'll shoot. That's funny. The rest of it is baffling. <laughs> I like baffling. So you had you had some stuff in here about how like I I was again nonplussed at just the persistence of crime in Miami. <laughs> but you actually brought up a pretty good bit of research here. Yeah, Miami was a famous crime hotspot at the time. It was the focal point for the drug trade, the cocaine trade specifically. Obviously, Scarface and Miami Vice were huge things, and it was all based on fact. There was a lot of drugs and a lot of violence in Miami. And even though it had this polished exterior of a vacation town and a destination, it was also a drug-addled, violent place. One of the most violent shootouts in American history took place in the 80s in Miami. So I'm not saying that this is a documentary, but it has a little bit of basis in what was going on at the time, which is that there's a lot of crazy, petty crime going on in the city. And I also think an important thing to think about with this movie, just as an idea, is the idea of cocaine. I'd be very <laughs> curious what the cocaine situation was on the production and conception of Miami Blues, because this movie is cocaine. This movie is cocaine movie-fied, I think. I don't know. It's kind of laid back, though. It doesn't have, like, that much energy. I think Baldwin's performance is very cocaine-y. Mm. It's, it's schizophrenic. Just, he's, hey man, you do a line, tell me how you feel. You'll be really happy <laughs> one minute, you'll be really crazy the next minute, and then you'll feel like having a nice house with a white picket fence the next minute. Hey, uh, Drugs speaking is crazy. of cocaine in Miami Vice, 
who do we get in this next scene? We get Paul Gleason, the principal himself of the Breakfast Club. Great diehard, diehard. Uh, what's the name of his character? Diehard. Uh, he's like the, the lieutenant, um, chief of police, or whatever. Yeah, deputy he's chief. He's amazing. Yeah. He, is this scene one? Is this scene one camera angle just from the bed, basically? You no, know, it cuts back and forth a couple of times for sure. <laughs> but he walks in, Paul Gleason, who like normally plays like squares. Like the squarest of squares, squares who are so square that they are the antagonists of the movies that they are in. He walks in dressed like Crockett from Miami (laughs) Vice. And he's like this dirty cop that for some reason Alec Baldwin has put on the trail of Mosley. Because he wanted to fuck with Mosley. He wanted to fuck with Mosley. Or did he want to pay Mosley back for the stuff that he No, 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 no. He's going around with Mosley's badge, fucking him over around town. He's like... Tell this cop that Mosley took the money. So now Mosley's going to get bitched out by him. So, but here's where I was at in this movie. Because this is the part of the movie where it seems like he actually kind of wants to do good in his own weird way. I thought he did it to, like, put the dirty cop in Mosley's radar. No. no. He just wanted to fuck with him. I guess. Yeah. He's having a great time fucking with Mo- with Mosley. Gleason's pretty good in this scene. He is. And he's basically just playing the principal from The Breakfast Club, but now he's Miami Vice. But yeah, like the Miami, the Miami Vice version, he's kind of sleazy and like yeah. isn't square. It's like he's got like a chain around his neck and his hair is greased <laughs> yeah. back. That is the whitest coat I've ever seen. It's it so was white. unbelievably white. Uh, I love that scene. And I just love how pathetic Mosley is at this moment. <laughs> he's got his neck brace on. You think he's already been the lowest of the low, but there's more humiliation well, and this to come. Is actually, like really where he re-enters the movie because he's like beaten into unconsciousness and yeah, he's, he's gone for like 30 minutes. You see, yeah. one of the things I wanted to try and figure out, one of the reasons I looked at the book is when you read the jacket description of the book, it almost sounds like the book starts with Mosley getting beaten. Like it's like he okay. wakes up and is like, who did this to me? That's the book. That's the mystery. That's the arc that you have to try and solve. I didn't get far enough in my reading to to figure out if that's true, because obviously the book starts exactly where the movie does with Junior on the airplane. But I think it might frame itself a little bit more from Mosley's perspective. Yeah, it's, it is a little weird that it's not from his perspective, but I sort of enjoyed that because I just was enjoying watching Baldwin's shenanigans more and more and more. And Mosley's whole story is pretty simple. He gets beaten up. He knows he who did it. Knows who did it. And he tracks him down and kills him. That's all we're doing here. Uh, so after that, there's the scene at the grocery store. This is how we end the montage of Baldwin the cop. He walks into the store a robbery immediately takes place, as is what always happens in this movie. Yep. And at this point, I'm loving that. I'm just loving that we can rely on there always being a mugger. And he grabs a little jar of spaghetti sauce and threatens the the robber as though he's holding a gun. Now, let me tell you something. I loved this scene because it was just so weird and it was so random. I'm not a huge fan of like, oh, it's random, random, random. But in this case, the movie's already proven that it's on crack. And we might as well just go crazy with it. Have him hold a can of spaghetti sauce at a a robber and then have the robber drive through the plate glass window. It's spectacle. It's funny. And I love the line at the end where he's like, where's the whipping cream? I thought it was great. So I like those two things that you mentioned. I like him threatening with the spaghetti sauce. It's surprising and funny. It's a great image. And it also kind of fits with this sort of 
air of invincibility that that junior has built up. And I like the guy driving through the plate glass window because, again, it's surprising and unexpected. I wasn't thinking the scene was going to go that way. But the scene exemplifies, again, a problem that I have with not understanding who Baldwin is. I don't understand why he kills some of the criminals that he interacts with and lets others go. Because when he tells this guy that if he just leaves, he'll let him go, I believe him. Baldwin's playing it like he's sincere. But I don't see any reason why this guy's any different than the racketeer that he just shot two scenes earlier. <laughs> I don't understand why. I, I, and the movie doesn't really explain it. And even the whipping cream line, which I do think is funny, is a pretty good example of the kind of amateurish filmmaking that's happening here. Because that joke would land as a punchline if we knew that was why he was in the grocery store in the first place. Mm. We see him go in the dairy aisle, but we don't know what he's after. And we don't know if he's after anything because we don't know anything about this guy. But if we knew he was going in for that, then all this crazy shit happens. And after all that happens, he then says that line. Then it feels like a punchline or payoff. And it would actually be much funnier, I think. I guess so. I guess when it comes down to it, it's about the micro moments as opposed to like the big setups. And that's what makes this movie a different comedy. It's like... You're finding the yeah, beauty comedy that in, isn't funny uh, for you. For me, I was laughing. And <laughs> I, I, I got to I got to say most of the reviews online, people are like, this shit is funny. It's true. It's all about just those little tiny moments between two people where it's not the setup of him having to find whipping cream and then a robbery taking place. It's literally just the way he's looking at the guy and the way that he says, where is the whipping cream? Like, it's those very small little things that were the things that were making me laugh. It wasn't the gigantic Charlie Chaplin setup of the situation and then something goes wrong and then this happens. It's just yeah. Baldwin and his charisma and the style around it. And all of that together made me laugh. And I don't know what more I can say on it. Let's move on. Yeah, let's speed through the rest of this. We got the stitching up scene. Stitching up scene, which really I, I wanted to talk about how this movie is like. I feel a precursor to Tarantino. This was so Pulp Fiction. It was very much like the the adrenaline shot in Pulp Fiction. Although that scene has energy and tension and pacing. And this scene was more just like Baldwin complaining, but that's fine. Then there's this also a scene where Mosley confronts Susie, tells her Junior's a murderer, which is going to set off the final act where she abandons him. So she's kind of got doubt about him. This is one of the times where the movie kind of lingers on a scene where I actually think it works. Yeah. The play out of her reaction after Mosley leaves was, was really quite affecting. And again, Jennifer Jason Leigh just knocking my socks off in this movie. And then she has the great vinegar pie scene where she makes vinegar pie, but she has way extra vinegar. So she knows that it's going to taste disgusting. And it's kind of a test to see whether or not he's going to lie about yeah. it, which he does. And it then pays off in that final scene where she explains that, you know, he always ate everything that she cooked him. And, and that was what she needed. Like, that's what she had. Right. Um, and I, I like that scene where she pours way extra vinegar. It's just a cool thing. A, another cool thing. And he, him lying is like the only sympathetic thing Junior does in the entire movie. Because it comes after a series of scenes when he's been pretty cold to yeah. to Susie. Um, and so it's kind of a nice, a nice cap to those to say, no, but he really does care for her in his own way. And this is how he can express it. Even though yeah. prior to this, I didn't necessarily feel like I knew that he cared for her. The next day, he's got to go on a bunch of errands. He needs her to drive him. He's acting like he's on cocaine. 
I think he is. And she takes him to the coin store. There's another kind of Tarantino-esque scene. Really reminded me of like the pawn shop in Pulp Fiction Mm. where there's a guy in the closet with a shotgun and everyone ends up getting shot or mutilated. And Baldwin gets his fingers chopped off great moment when he gets it's just so shocking and and he's pretty funny trying to scoop them off like this yeah, is the, he the big laugh the movie got from me was like the yeah. physical comedy of the fingers <laughs> which is always funny i was thinking about um what other movie does it uh um kiss kiss bang bang gets his finger yeah. cut off in the door it's just it's always funny always great and and hoke is following them all this time and basically what ends up happening is she abandons him in the street and there's a shootout very reminiscent of Blue Steel, that shootout. Totally. Just without all the slow-mo. And they end up back at the house, and there's a standoff, and he dies. And he, his death is ridiculous. He has, like, a last word, and he's kind of, like, tilts his head, and it's just so balls to the wall. And then he falls on the table, so we just get, like, a great shot of his butt in some plaid <laughs> pants. Oh, and those pants. Those goddamn pants are so great. Those when I don't even think you really see them until this scene You really somehow. don't. You, you don't see notice when he's them? getting into the car, but it, you don't notice them nearly as Maybe much. Maybe it's the blood covering them that you finally get, you, it calls attention to the pants, but those pants, wow, those <laughs> pants. Just want to shout out. Stylish movie. Uh, and yeah, that's basically Dude, the end. There's a, one last scene with the- uh, Baldwin's with, sweater, uh, Susie's tank top. There's some great fashion in this movie. When she's wearing that pink jumpsuit or something- it's just amazing. And then the shirt that uh, Hoke is wearing at the very end, too. It's uh, it's it's unreal. Some of the best costumes I've ever seen. So <laughs> that's the end of the movie. Demi's costume designer, too. Oh, cool. So, yeah, the, but that's basically it. He They have a one final scene between Hoke and Jennifer Jason Lee, and then it's just Spear in the Sky again. Yeah, I wish and it was a different song. Yeah, it should have been a you different song. You can't do the same needle they... drop twice in one movie. Yeah, I agree with that. Um... So that's it. That's, I, I think we kind of covered everything we need to say. I think we sort of see where we stand. Well, we should we should do like a final review because I actually do have a couple more thoughts I haven't mentioned yet. Okay. Uh, I just, I was, but I was just saying, I, I think this is a really good delineation of like the difference between you and me personally sure. on what we might be looking for in a narrative mm-hmm. and in a movie. So I mentioned early on in the episode, the Demi connection. And I mentioned something wild, which is the film that I think this film is most similar to. You've got a square dude. You've got uh, like a wild child girl, and you've got this crazy manic, super charismatic ex-con. You sort of have that same dynamic, but the movie is structured very differently where we start with the square who meets the girl and that kind of brings them in an adventure. And halfway through, that's when Ray Liotta enters, who plays the con. And I wonder if that's what this movie just needs. It just like Baldwin's performance would probably be fine if he wasn't the main character in the movie. If he wasn't the person that we spent 80% of our time with. Because I don't need to know what the crazy wild card character who comes into spice of the movie is thinking all the time. But I need to know what my protagonist is thinking. Right. And uh, I I think that that may be ultimately like the single biggest flaw with this movie or the thing that would be easiest to fix. It could be Susie. It could be Hoke. Either of them have enough real humanity that we could tell the story from their perspective and just have Junior pop in and be the spice that sets off this otherwise pretty solid run a day crime story. 
Dude, I got over that immediately. I think if you want to have a good time, you want to soak in the Miami sun, and you just want to see some cocaine-addled motherfuckers, it's a great movie. Well, most critics uh, agree with you. Most <laughs> yeah. The film is very well-reviewed, but general audiences agree with me. Let's talk yeah. box office. Let's talk box office. Movie opens April 20th, 1990. On a budget of $11 million, it makes $3 million opening weekend. It goes on to make just under $10 million domestic. No international release. Definitely kind of a dud. Um, yeah. You know, a bomb. Anything that makes less than you know twice its budget is a bomb. And this one doesn't even make its budget back. I think coming off of Red October, this was a pretty big setback for Baldwin. You know, oh, he yeah, was, looked like he was set up to have a really big year, um, you know, with one of the highest grossing films, all of that. And I think if this movie had also landed with audiences, he might have had a very different career trajectory. But instead, he kind of immediately wears out his welcome, perhaps with audiences. Um, do you want to, the ranking game sort of superfluous in this one because it, you know, it's nowhere near the top 25. 47. Uh, you know, that was, that was too conservative. 106. Okay. So it almost cracks 100. Got but it, that's not it. where you want to be. You don't want to be below 100 for film, your film releases. Yeah. Yeah. I, I am curious how they marketed this movie. Like, were they stressing the crime? Were they stressing the funny? It's hard one to market, I think. It's true, and I don't know how hard they pushed it. I mean, April's, again, kind of, particularly in 1990, not like a premiere release slot. Right. But the books were popular, and the trailer was funny. I watched the trailer back when we were talking about whether or not we were going to cover this movie, and I remembered it up to the point that I watched the movie. Like, it had some good bits. I was excited to see it. So, yeah. it, I think it just failed to resonate. I think that uh, it just, like, the audience wasn't there for it. And critics who often love to get their hands on something that breaks the mold were maybe more generous than people who wanted something that fits more of their expectations. Let's talk about the 1990 themes. I mean, obvious one here for me is crime. And I wanted to expand on this a little bit. I mean, I, so I first pitched this idea in Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles and um, <laughs> it's come up quite a bit. And granted, part of that is that crime movies, crime is a great genre for movies. Crime is very popular in movies. Um, and, you and I like crime movies, so when we're looking at a bunch of movies to watch and there's some that are about crime, we're like, hey, let's do those. Yeah, exactly. But what I think that these movies represent is an attitude towards crime where it's not just a crime or a criminal, but it's like crime with a capital C. It's crime that is widespread and monolithic. That is like the ever-present disease of American society. Yeah, it's everywhere. Yeah. In both this and Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. There's just crime on every corner. This movie makes a joke of how much crime is happening. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and it's always, like, the most obvious crime possible. It's a crazy person with a weapon pointing it at somebody. <laughs> They're just all on the demands. streets just committing crimes <laughs> in broad daylight. Yeah, it's it's everywhere. And I guess, yeah, that was in the cultural consciousness for sure. And it's funny that it just keeps coming up in every movie we talk about. The other thing that I this movie may think of was the long conversation we had in the Misery episode about the kind of the off-kilter, askance viewpoint of that movie, the kind of like the postmodernism of it. I was thinking about, you know, Nightbraid and Blue Steel have a little bit of that too. They're not as um like comical in their, in their askew viewpoint but they are telling stories from new perspectives and so yeah. a lot of the time we're telling an old story but we're telling it in a new way and i think miami blues really fits in that mold there's been plenty of movies about psychos 
Um, but <laughs> none told it particularly with this kind of style. Do you think that this movie fits in with like the noir trappings? I kind of got that vibe. I was thinking about like something like double indemnity and this being like a weird like a gender flip fueled, not a gender flip, but just, just another in- instance of like a crazy story about a crazy person and a cop trying to track him down and a girl and crime and guns and sex and violence. I, I mean, noir is such a hard genre to pin down and neo-noir in particular, because it's so much about like subverting genre tropes. But I think this movie doesn't have the sense of alienation that's critical to a noir film. A noir film to is- me, I, I thought it did. I thought that the whole idea of him wanting to try to create this weird fifties household with her and like just being I, I, what really resonated with me was when he says she's talking about opening a burger joint and franchising it. And he's like, let's just skip that. Let's just go to the part where we have the nice house. <laughs> and that was so 1990 to me that the attitude has now shifted to be an asshole, steal what you need and just play like everything is normal. That's the biggest theme that I got from this movie is that the people in this society that are driving things forward are the people that are acting like everything's fine, but really there's a trail of bodies and there's a trail of crime behind them. You know what's interesting is in some ways that's sort of like anti-noir, like kind of noir's whole thing is 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 I don't have a place in the world anymore, so I will just let my life be destroyed. And this movie's more right. like I will destroy others' lives so I have a place in this world. But I think deep you know, down, you know, it's about like abandoning knows... the happy ending, and this is about achieving the happy ending through complete moral degradation. But I think deep down, he knows that it's not going to last. I think he gets on the plane at the beginning, and I'm just, I'm just making this up because you're right; they never explain it in the movie. But what I got from him is that he's getting on this plane to go to Miami and just have a crazy fucking time, and he knows it's going to end with him getting killed or put it back in prison. And there's just all these weird ideas about like, let's let's get a house, baby. I got us a house. Okay, I'm living this life. We're gonna make it happen. And I know it's not super thought out, but it still made me think about it. So yeah. it's there. No, I'm with you. I just also wanted to mention the coming wave of off kilter crime movies. That's going to be a huge part of the nineties. Yeah. This this is paving the way for Pulp Fiction, Fargo, and even the lesser movies that aren't as well remembered. I think that we're getting to that point where you're making true romance and you're making natural born killers. It's really interesting to look at that because so often that boon is attributed to Tarantino specifically. It's like everyone's right. trying to make their Tarantino movie. But there was also just like a genre swelling the way there is from time to time for that kind of film before Tarantino and concurrent yeah. with Tarantino. And Tarantino just does it most memorably. Yeah, so and probably best. Probably best, yeah. Anyway, that's Miami Blues. I think we had a very, very lively discussion. <laughs> and we'll just have to agree to disagree. I recommend it. It's very pretty to, to look I at. I feel like, what is a... I, 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 I wish I had watched like a bunch of episodes of... Um, at the movies with Cisco and Ebert because they're always so funny when they disagree with each other because they get so mad at each other sometimes. I'm trying to come at this from a place of peace, man. I just want to talk about the movie. I just think I, I should have I should have researched some good insults for like. How no, could you say that? That's ridiculous. That. We're not doing that. This is not that kind of show. 
This is a friendly show. Right. This isn't a this isn't a competition. We're both coming with our points of view, and we're going to learn from each other. Absolutely, that's the whole thing. And listeners, if you thing. want to comment on who won, you, you can spell my name B E N. Great. <laughs> All right, I'm not going to humor that. So our next movie is another lesser known 1990 piece, but historically big indie movie called House Party. Another comedy. Another comedy. So we're going to be talking more about what makes us laugh, you guys which is riveting. got to get in all the chuckles now because there's a lot of not funny movies coming down the line. Exactly. Uh, and I'm pretty excited about House Party. I've known about it for a really long time, and I've, I'm, I'm really excited to finally watch it. So, yeah. Well, for Back to the Movies. I was going to say, Nat, is, thank you for the conversation. Oh, yes. I, since I was being a little bit of an asshole before, I just wanted to say <laughs> thank you for the conversation. I really do appreciate your enthusiasm and your insights. Hey, no problem, you bastard. Uh, for Back to the Movies, this is Nat. And this is Ben. And we're signing off. So go watch House Party, and we'll talk to you next time. Bye-bye. Adios. Bye.